while we've got financial goals, we've got you know different initiatives we want to sort of achieve. I think fundamentally, we really just want to bring more people into the sport of boxing and help them understand what the benefits are. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Shopify Masters, the weekly podcast powered by Shopify, your companion for starting and building a business. I'm your host, Felix Tia. My guest today is Ben Amano, the founder of BoxRaw. His story begins when he was a kid. Ben was bullied growing up, so when he turned 12, he took up boxing to fight back. Over the years, Ben's love for boxing only grew. But while he was training, he saw a big gap in the boxing apparel space. That realization inspired Ben to launch BoxRaw, a boxing clothing and accessories brand. Welcome, Ben. Thank you for having me, Felix. How are you? Good, good. So how did you choose this, this business and industry? I, I'd always had a, a strong link to boxing from a young age. I actually got into boxing at the age of 12. I kind of fell into it because I was you know, I, I was bullied a lot growing up. And boxing was kind of that sort of safe haven for me. Uh, and it allowed me to sort of stand up to the bullies. I started working at the gym by the age of 15. I went to university, started a boxing club, went on to win the national championships. After university, various boxing businesses from events, promotions, to white collar events, raising money for charity and so on. Boxing was never, I, I never thought of it as that's going to be my end business, right? And then I suppose, you know, Box Raw, as you know it, which was actually the name of a event promotion company previously for boxing. I actually just happened to be training for a fight one day off the back of another business uh, having failed. And I remember just running down the street in this um, Adidas tracksuit. I remember wanting people to know that I was training for a fight, right? I was really proud of the fact that I was a boxer. And I suppose, you know, in, in the weeks after that, I, I remember starting to look around and just recognizing that it w- wasn't really a brand that represented boxing, you know, how I knew it to be. I suppose, that, you know, the brands that came before us, they just focus on the end result, the fight night, boots, gloves, shorts, um, you know, the whole glamorization of, of the sport of boxing. Um, but for me, it was the journey to get to that point, what was most magical, you know, it, it was the it was the lifestyle of a boxer that needed to be talked about. So yeah, boxing, it, it's always been there. And I, I'm very um, grateful of the fact now I've been able to sort of merge, you know, two big passions of mine, which is boxing business, you know, and I've created this brand yeah that makes sense almost like they're the, the training aspect of the, the journey of it not just like the the glamorous like the the, the lights of the, the the fight and all that exactly when you recognized that this was missing in the marketplace did you know that there were other boxers like you aspiring boxers that needed this as well like how were you able to know that it wasn't just something that you had noticed but that there was a kind of a market demand for it well it's actually the opposite of that like, I, I asked around to a few people you know in the gym like, you know about boxing brand and a lot of them just laughed at me saying you know why would they wear your boxing brand when you know they all wear nike or jordan and so on and i just remember thinking that you know you guys are ludicrous like every major sports brand out there they all start with their niche sport right so nike athletics under armor american football adidas soccer band skateboarding uh, montclair skiing you know it's been done with every sport in history apart from boxing but the difference now was that we were at the start of this golden era of boxing. And I started to recognize that while I was at university, this boxing club I had, we grew that to over 950 members by my third year. And this was at a time when women's boxing wasn't really a thing. 70% of our members were women. You know, they're coming for these boxing fitness classes. Um, and that whole notion of them being in this empowered environment, it really helped create this community. So I, I started to recognize that boxing was on this sort of upwards trajectory. But the actual people in the gym, you know, that they were, or, you know, even friends, that they kind of just sort of laughed it off initially. Yeah, that, that's interesting, though, because I think that a lot of people, when they have an idea, they'll usually, you know, go around and, and ask 
their friends or people inside their circle. And usually they're much more encouraging or like, yeah, that's a great idea. Go, go and pursue that. But you heard the opposite. So what, what was it that kept you going that made you realize like, you know what, even though I'm not getting this immediate validation from people that are kind of knee deep in, in, in the boxing world, they're saying that we don't need this. What made you say, you know, that this is still, this is still something that I believe in? I saw the gap in the market, right? So it was off the back of a previous business, you know, spent two years working on it with me and two of the co-founders and five days into launch, they actually gave up and they said, look, it's, it's not really working, which was ludicrous to me because we got to the top 10 social networks in the top in the first three days. By day five, we dropped to like top 50 and they were like, okay, we're hanging up. It was almost that embarrassment of having spent two years working on something with these people to then tell all of my friends about that, tell them how big I think it was going to go. And by this point, right, I was thinking big, big scale, right? I was thinking like, billion dollar you know, brand, you know, the reality of that then being taken away from me, it was like, okay, right, I'm, I'm still thinking big. Um, and I think it was almost that ego of not wanting to be seen to have just failed and stopped that kept me going um, in the initial instance. But I think, you know, past that point, it was just that recognition and, you know, understanding of, you know, the journey of, of other brands um, and seeing where boxing had taken them. I think also just that confidence of what I understood about the sport, right? Because boxing, it really changed my, my life from a young age, right? I, you know, as I said, I, I got into the sport because I was bullied a lot. Parents came from India. They were, they were Christian missionaries. We grew up in an all-white Roman Catholic um, school and neighborhood. And, you know, so I was very much the, the outsider um, in that. But the boxing gym was the one place that, you know, never judged me. And there were so many components of the sport that, you know, really shaped me, you know, throughout school. You know, I, I was a little... You know, I was a little rascal in school, you know, I got suspended a lot. Um, but boxing always kept me on that straight and narrow. Um, so I think it was just that personal belief of what boxing could do, you know, for the world like, that kept me going in the initial instance. And, you know, I, I was never one to try and follow the crowd, you know. I, I was always, if I spot an opportunity, I went for it. Um, I think almost the fact when people say, I don't know if that could work, that was almost the motivation in the early days to try and prove them wrong. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting. I feel like that's a pretty common like entrepreneurial trait where you're going into this knowing that even though the odds are against you, you just know within yourself that you can kind of ignore this and kind of keep moving forward. Was there a certain point though where you weren't like swimming upstream so much and it just felt like things were kind of humming along better, like validation coming in and that what you your vision that you had in your mind started to kind of play out and to kind of counter some of the, that early you know negative feedback that you were getting? I never let any that gets me you know box was you know substantially grown since when i first started five years ago um but i'm still so far away from where i want to be so it's almost it's like the levels keep increasing right as i look back i can look at certain, certain moments and think wow okay we, we've come far but i don't think there's ever been a point whereby i've been like okay right we're starting to get traction because it's been you know it's been steady growth albeit you know slow growth in the, in the very early days but we've, we've had that sort of anywhere between sort of annualized around 300% growth year on year. It's been a constant struggle, if that makes sense. So every time we, you know, we elevate, I'm still trying to push to that next point. So I don't think there's been that moment where I've been like, ah, oh, okay, we've we made it now, or okay, we're now a recognized brand. I'd probably say more so this year. This year, they're starting to come around where people are, you know, I'm seeing more people in the streets wear it, people are coming up to me saying, oh yeah, I've seen this person wearing a friend's, it's just sending me pictures of people in random countries wearing it. Um, so I think probably now I'm a bit more aware of it, but still, you know, the level's increased now, okay? It's like, what's next? Yeah, that makes sense. Let's talk about the division the then that, that you have now. Like you mentioned that once you reach this, you're going to keep on kind of uh, moving the goalpost in and stretching yourself from from there. But the goal that you have today, like wh what does that look like? If you reached your current goal, like what does the company look like? What does the world look like when they think about boxing? Can you, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so the, vision's, the vision is to be the reason why the world got into boxing, right? We're trying to shift that narrative away from boxing being viewed as this elite sport that only a 
few who partake in, you know, at a competitive level. And it's said to show that anybody, age, gender, social demographic group, they can take up the sport and have it change their life, right? I think, you know, when we look through history again at the, at the, um, at the big brands that are out there, they've been the catalyst for a sport being adopted on a mass market scale, right? You, you look back to 60, 65 years ago, that the notion of running in the street was unheard of, right? The, the only people that did that were sort of Olympians, track athletes, uh, people that took part in tournaments. The Nike came along, you know, and popularized um the notion of running as a, as, a, as a leisure activity, you know, and sort of minor sports. You look, you know, conversely, 30 years ago, the notion of doing yoga, it was unheard of. It, people that did that were yogis in India, right? And then Lulu came along and then they popularized it, you know, and they made it a part of culture. And I think, you know, it's brands really that sort of responsible for the, the mass market adoption of a sport so that's really what i feel my purpose to be right i'm while we've got financial goals we've got you know different initiatives we want to sort of achieve but i think fundamentally we really just want to bring more people into the sport of boxing and help them understand what the benefits are um, and that's what we're about so, so it's that vision of trying to create a brand a legacy brand that can go up there and compete with the big boys right we're not doing this to be this small boutique boxing clothing brand you know and i think longer term you know as we start to scale up it will be shifting that narrative away from just the physicality of the sport and more around the mindset in that in every mind is a fighter and i think at that point that's when we start to go a lot more mass market but for now it's very much just to own and monopolize that boxing niche you know and that's through the products we create the stories we tell you know the charity endeavors that we have the charity the technology that we create and it's just you know it's all focused around how do we bring the world into boxing and you know i preach all the time to the team that you know if, if we were able to bring the world into boxing the market will reward us at some point right not everything has to have have you know a dollar you know cta attached to it it can just be about telling a story making someone think a little bit differently about the sport and having them take it up you mentioned that, that there's this big goal but right now kind of where you're at is like there's like little milestones on the way up to, to the big goal of changing the way the world sees boxing and you mentioned that the goal right now is just to kind of dominate the the niche of people that are already aware of boxing and they're already you know watching boxing already participating that are going to boxing gyms so what does that mean like tactically how do you what kind of efforts do you put in place to try to kind of dominate that that niche for us to own the boxing market, right, is um, we can then break that down into, and it's one of the goals for this year, right, first understand, you know, what is the addressable boxing market in the UK and the US. But from there, it's, it's then a case of, right, every single boxing gym, we want to have a presence there, right, whether it be the clothing that people are wearing in that gym, you know, the, the coaches, what they're wearing, what's in the ring, the bags, the equipment, you know, so it's, it's understanding that uh, consumer profile of a boxer and trying to make sure that 50% of what they do within a boxing gym or in a boxing environment, we own. Um, so obviously everything always starts with products, you know, and when we're big on innovation, we think we filed for 16 patents in the last two years. So, so we're very much playing a long game and, you know, actually just, just yesterday, a skipping rope launch that we've been working on for four years, you know, um, and it's just about, we're not just here to exist in this market. We're really here to try and innovate, shape and, you know, and create this this new ideal of what we think boxing should be. But I suppose, yeah, it always comes back to that consumer profile. Like how do we how do we tap onto whatever that they're doing in the environment that we're trying to serve? Makes sense. So I want to take it a little bit further or a little bit um, back to the beginning of it all. You mentioned that you were already uh, involved in businesses around boxing. I think you mentioned an app. You mentioned in events, promotion business, and the Box Raw brand and name came from that. When you were looking to to launch the this this new business, this this clothing and accessory line, how helpful was that? Like how helpful? Like what what ways were you able to use the work you've already done, the the connections you already made, the experience of the 
industry to to kind of you know give a a bigger push a bigger launch to to your new brand yes i I think the only thing that in terms of the boxing you know business or activities i was involved with the only thing that really helped me with box raw you know today was just that knowledge of the sport and understanding the community and the people that are partaking in the sport you know from boxers themselves to to coaches to promoters things like that um but aside from that, it wasn't a lot. Like I think launching a you know launching an e-commerce brand is uh, it's a completely different kettle of fish. You know, I think it, the, the biggest thing from a previous so the big business that was able to fund Box Raw was a car sales business that I set up you know straight after uni, um, and that was actually still running for about a year and a half into while Box Raw had launched, and that was funding you know Box Raw to stay alive essentially. Um, but, but there wasn't too, you know I think the, the from the car sales side it was the relationships you know having to deal with customers you know very stressful circumstances sometimes um, and that really helped me deal with stress when it came to box draw but aside from that there wasn't at least to, to my knowledge too much transferable skills I think what in fact what, what really helped in the early days was actually the, the Shopify blogs like I was you know I was waking before a.m. every morning while working the car sales business and I would read every Shopify blog that I could that I could read right inside out I knew that whole blog platform right and uh, you know the blog's probably much bigger than what it was back then but you know, it got to a point where I read every single blog twice over because I was just trying to consume and consume. You know, so I'd read the blogs, I'd go to work, you know, I'd be selling cars, changing oil filters, packing orders by the evening, reading more blogs, and just just consuming not the knowledge, knowledge, right? Because yeah, I, I had no experience in this type of business. And it was very I was very much one man banned in all the previous businesses. So when it came to the later point, you know, when we first started to hire, like I think maybe two years in was our first hire, then it became a point of okay, let me try and read about how to manage, you know, better. It was all very much, you know, off the cuff and just, you know, failing and learning and, you know, figuring out as I went along. Yeah, I feel like that's like a very common story that people can relate to where they are working some other job, in your case, car sales, maybe someone's working in an office or something or some other job and they're spending their, their downtime or anytime they can just to, to, to learn about business and learn about e-commerce and then, and also using those funds to fund their kind of project on the side at the time. So as you're going through this, tell us more about like how you're able to to kind of balance this in a way where you're constantly moving forward. I think a, a, an issue that some people might run into is that they, they have a, a day job, regular job, and they're consuming this, but it's just hard for them to kind of switch gears to translate that into execution. So tell us more about how you, you take the knowledge that you're gaining and actually put it into action. Yeah, I think I was hungry, right? I was really hungry to make this business succeed. Um, and, and it took me, well, initially, when I first, when the idea of Boxer first came to my head, Boxer, as you know it, I told, I gave myself a three-month timeline to launch a brand. Like I was so delusional in, in how long it would take to actually set this up. So I think it was just that naivety and not being too scared to fail, but at the same time, so driven to try and make it work. But I, I never really considered about, okay, how am I going to make this work by working in the daytime? It was just, I, I was using the time that I had, you know, and I think in the early days, I was probably sleeping like anywhere between three to sort of five hours a night. It was relentless. So I was just so driven. I was just thinking like, I don't want to have to go back to working in a business whereby I've got co-founders, you know, I've got other people that are responsible for my future. So I just saw this as my opportunity. You know, I've seen other brands, you know, that started to blow up, you know, relatively new brands. And I was like, okay, it can be done. Um, So I suppose it was just that, just that drive that really kept me going. But it, there was never really a moment where I was thinking, okay, how do I manage this and so on? You know, I, I just knew it would take as long as it would take to launch. And I just, I, you know, I always just came back to that vision, you know, the, 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 the ideal of where I was trying to get to. 
Yeah. Now, now that you look back on it, and because a business is very resource demanding, consuming, whether that means your time or, or money, if you're spending it on inventory or advertising, or whatnot. Uh, early on, what did you? What do you think were the best uses of your resources? Best uses of your time? Like, what were you doing that? Now, looking back, like, yeah, that was a great bang for my buck in terms of how much time I spent on it, how much money I spent on it, and also conversely, what were some things that you look back like? You know what? If I could warn entrepreneurs about this pitfall that just a waste of time, waste of money, I would like to warn them about. Just give us a kind of the, the good and the bad of like how you used your time and money. Yes, I think a good way that I used my money was in the early days, especially was not having to hire anybody because I was able to do everything myself, right? And this, you know, I always come back when people ask me about advice about, you know, when to start a business, I might just jump on Shopify's blogs and, you know, try and learn everything there. So that really meant that I didn't have to hire anybody. So I was able to do the website, the picking and packing, the social media, the email marketing, customer service. Um, and, you know, if you, if you can't find it on Shopify, you can find it on, on Google, right? So in the early days, that's, you know, my resources, uh, I was very lean. So any of the money that I spent was either on products, which I made a hell of a lot of mistakes on. So I was just so fussy. Um, and we actually got fired by, I think, two suppliers, you know, before launch, because I was just picking up on every minor detail and, you know, they didn't like it. They said it wasn't, it wasn't um, possible for them to make something so perfect in book production. Um, but I think, you know, at a later point, that almost became you know, to my own detriment in the fact that I was so heavily involved in every single department. It then became very hard for me to then let go um, of certain areas because I didn't trust people to do it to the same standard that I was doing it. Um, but in the early stages, you know, I, I'd say, the best money that I spent was obviously on the products and then on the online marketing. Now, that being said, online marketing has changed significantly to when I first started five years ago um, in that you don't get a lot of bank buck. Before, you could spend £5 and reach hundreds of thousands of people you know, on, on Instagram and Facebook. Now, you spend £5, you'd be lucky to reach about 10 You know, So I think the, the, the world and dynamic of how people are communicated to and marketed to has changed a lot right now. Um, so I would say, you know, the best use of resources, first of all, will be products, right? The, the product needs to be great. Um, and then the next use of resources will be, you know, creating a content funnel, right? Because we're content driven. I think the world nowadays, especially if you're trying to go into e-commerce, you know, it's all content driven. So it's trying to carve out, you know, first of all, what's your niche, you know, what's your why, who is it you're trying to serve? And they're selling there. And then serving them with content that actually makes sense. So that's why in the early days we had a, I think maybe one year before we launched, and we had an Instagram page that was building a community around. Now nobody, no, nobody knew that we were a clothing brand. Everyone just knew it was box raw coming soon. And what we did, we just posted content that the community could relate to. You know, so we sparking conversations. Um, and I was very much a pirate, right? I had probably 10, 10 you know, burner accounts on Instagram, right? And what I would do is I'd comment on my own Instagram page, you know, from this fake account. It's quite funny actually because it was these profiles, you know, they, they took me weeks and weeks to build, you know, to get followers on there. But they were they were all like personas of my friends. So I used photos that I have of my friends post them and I create these like weird personalities. But what would happen is, you know, someone from the outside world would comment on a box raw post and I would then respond from one of my um, burner accounts. You know, I, I sparked these debates and what happened over time was that more and more people started to join the conversation, you know, because I understood what would you know what would spark a you know, an interesting discussion about a certain boxer or, you know, a controversial topic. The whole ethos behind, you know, what I was doing was all around how do I create this community within boxing, you know, and then when it came to launch, we had around 20,000 Instagram followers, you know, and the community was already there. Um, and we brought up a name at that point of, of being, 
you know, almost like an authority because we knew what we were talking about, right? I knew how to speak to these, to the boxers, you know, having been involved in the sport for such a long time. So that was, that was super helpful. But I would say, you know, many people when they're starting a business try and, it's almost like they're trying to look for an excuse and say, I haven't got the money to start a business. Like you don't need a lot in this, you know, it's 2022 and Instagram account is free to create. You can create content on your phone. And if you understand who is you trying to serve, you know, and it's a, you know, it's a viable business and mission, then you'll be able to make it work for, you know, next to nothing, you know, other than just the cost of the products. Hold that thought. We'll be right back after this quick word from Shopify. <laughs> the first cup of coffee, it was awful. Meet Rod Johnson, co-founder of Black & Bold, a premium specialty coffee and tea company powered by Shopify. The journey of Black & Bold started with us opening our online Shopify store while we were burning beans in my business partner's garage. Shopify allows us to stay true to our mission by having an easily customizable and responsive site that make it very easy for novices to try their hand in becoming entrepreneurs. Get a free 14-day trial at shopify.com slash podcast. I'm back with Ben Amana, the founder of Box Raw. Okay, so you talked about a couple of things there and I want to dive into one at a time. So you mentioned about how investing in the product was was important, a way to spend your money, and then um, investing in kind of the, the content funnels, you called it, was a great way of using your time. So we'll talk about those separately. Um, before we get to that, though, I want to learn more about like what did the brand look like in, in version one? Because right now you have many, many more products, many, many SKUs on the website. The, the product line has grown, but like what was the very first time someone could come to your site and buy something like what were you selling yeah we had um, a hoodie in two colors we had a tracksuit in two colors um one type of t-shirt in four colors and another type of t-shirt in four colors and that was it and um i actually got it really wrong the first time with the first product offering because coming back to that point and we wanted to put so much energy into sort of trying to create the best possible products what happened is you know i'd, I'd be sending products to different boxes um, and they loved the gear, but what actually happened is that none of, none of them wanted to train in it. They said it was too good quality to train in. They wanted to wear it on the street. So then suddenly I was sort of this dilemma of that, right, how the hell do I create this content of boxes in this training gear when they don't want to train in it, they want to wear it on the street. Um, so I had to make a quick shift into, right, okay, let's try it to not so much reduce the quality, just make it a lot clearer that this is for training. But in the early days, it was small. In the, in the early days, it was very small. But at the same time, I did put a lot of energy into the... Um, into the products I was crazy. That, that's interesting. I'd love to hear more about how, what you changed about the product to to make it more clear that you should be using this to train. Yes, yeah, so, uh, it's it's not so much that you know that product stayed there, right? And in fact, those those products that I just talked about is it's called the Bemsey hoodie, which is still available online now. Um, we, we bought it back about a year ago. We, we, we had to stop making it after like two years because it was too expensive. Um, and we just bought it back now. You know, it, it was a, and the other ones were the uh, whisker track suits, uh, which is still there today. But I think, you know, additionally past that point, it was really then going back into these boxing gyms and looking like, okay, why are these guys actually training in? You know, and just trying to understand the reason why they're training in certain items of clothing. So we created the next product after that was a pep short. And that was a two-in-one training tie. So it was shorts with leggings built into it. And I was noticing that boxers were wearing leggings all the time, but they didn't want to show that you right when they're training so they wore shorts on top of it and it was just a, you know it was just a logical thing okay if they that's what they're wearing then we can probably make a two-in-one service and save them a load of time and probably look better um so it just came to actually trying to trying to serve that market so i think initially i had that vision of knowing that the market needed to be served but then when i started in the product i almost forgot about the actual customer it was almost like right let's just try and create the best possible product not thinking about where it's going to be used 
So did you have to go through many iterations to kind of land finally on on a product that not only was it in the quality that you wanted, but also that served the use case that you wanted? Yeah, man. I so uh, say it took two years for me to launch Box Store, and the only reason it took so long to launch was because the products, right? So, and it, this, I, I was graphic. Like, I, I had no clue what I was doing. And the, the one thing that Shopify doesn't tell you on a blog is how to create a tech pack, you know, or how to go about creating a design for clothing. Um, so the way I did it, I, I simply went into the local sports store. Um, I bought, I, know, I spent thousands on products, right? And every single size range. And I was an idiot, right? So I'd, I'd measure a small, I'd then measure the medium, you know, large, extra large, double, extra large, input all these sizes, you know, into a table and then trying to figure out my own special sizing. And then, you know, after probably a couple of years in, you know, I realized that there's a thing called grading where you can just get one size and then grade it upwards and downwards. But it was, it, it, it was a lot of trial and error in the early days. And actually, as I said, you know, two supplies fired me. I, you know, I then left one supplier because I wasn't happy with the products and I ended up donating all of that gear then to charity. Um, I actually all of us shipped to, um, shipped to Ghana at the time. So I was just very fussy about it. And, and what would happen is the de- development process would take so long in that by the time we got the final sample, fashion had almost changed. You know, and my ideas of thinking had changed because I'd also developed as a designer, if you like. So it, it was messy, you know, and, and it, it was a it was a hard pill to swallow in in the initial instances because even with this Instagram page, when, when I first launched it, the coming soon website would say we're launching in a month, you know, and that got pushed back. So it was a yeah, <laughs> it was a mess, man. But I think you know what did help me in the early days actually, and what I started to recognise after speaking to a few suppliers is that they they judge you based on where you're coming from, right? So they're they're going to do their research on who they're speaking to. So what I did with this coming soon page, I then created loads of alias email accounts so i'd be emailing different suppliers from different um aliases you know like product director and so on you know saying look we're rebranding the company um with the biggest brand in boxing but the website's down at the moment you know we're doing a completely new relaunch and somehow i was able to sway with them and you know they were bought into it so i think what's very important in the early days is your ability to be able to sell the vision to who you, you're working with whether it be suppliers creators you know influencers you know boxes or whatever your niche is but people need to be able to be bought in because otherwise it can get very expensive as well like people are more likely to do a good deal for you if they can see where it is you're headed and you know that's really why i banked on with these suppliers and that i went to some big suppliers you know who were dealing with some major brands out there and if you're able to find that one rep you know who you deal with whether it be you know in turkey and in china and mauritius and you know cambodia create build that relationship with them i think that's really what the car sales business taught me is, is the importance of relationships in business the other part of the reason why i got fired by some suppliers in the early days is because i supposed to much shit you know so I, I thought they're in china i'm in i'm in england and i've got this potentially big brand and i can speak to them how i want to speak to i can complain about every single issue and it's not you're dealing with the person on the brand of it right business is not business you know business is formed on relationships so you know that that was a that was a big mistake i made in the early days um so you know, if i can give, give advice for you know people sign up from the get-go when it comes to dealing with suppliers it's set out to build the relationship with the supplier and then sure you can sell the hell out of what it is you're trying to do you know and create the perception if you need to of the brand being much bigger than it is um, because what you, you need them to do is they need to be bought into the fact that they're not going to make a lot of money from you in the initial instance for that, you know, small 50 order quantity that you're getting, right? They, they won't make a lot of money off that. Where they're making the money is when you get thousands and tens of thousands of orders. So, so it's, it's essential um, from the get-go to, uh, you know, to, to be real with the people you work with. What you're getting at too is the how 
it from the manufacturer's perspective, especially when they're creating something that that they don't already have expertise in. They have to kind of create either things from scratch for you, or or you know make a lot of tweaks to what they already have. They are seeing you as an investment that they're seeing is it worth working with this person if it's going to is it going to pay off in the, in the long run so tell us more about how you're able to to convince them of that like did you did you learn over time like hey if i say these things it doesn't really land if i say this they seem to be intri- these manufacturers seem to be more intrigued and want to work with me like you learn this uh, over time yeah definitely i think it's, it's as you start to speak suppliers they start to use lingo with you and you're like what, what, what the hell does that mean like what's an MOQ or what's an X factory, you know, shipping term. So why I actually did, and we still use it today when we're reaching out to new suppliers. Um, I had this list of questions that I had to ask, which some of the questions didn't even mean anything, right? And it didn't make a difference to my business or their business. But the fact I was asking it made it seem like I knew what I was talking about, right? And it was just, you know, from researching online about what I should be asking, you know, and obviously from getting some orders in that we then didn't, gone to sell on the website i understood certain things that came on the invoices or you know so i'd ask questions around that you know in terms of what their shipping options are and you know is x factory is it fob um or some in order quantities and you know i'll ask random questions about some specific types of embellishments which i had no interest in using but they clearly showed that i was a technical you know product director you know if that was the earliest i was using yeah you almost kind of have to demonstrate that that you know what you're talking about even just by asking questions Exactly, exactly, man, exactly. Because the thing is, it's so there's such low barriers to entry nowadays for people to go and start a brand that these bigger companies and you know, suppliers are aware of the fact that these brands come and go. So their, you know, their confidence in you will really impacts how they work with you. And you know, it's the difference between getting a sample that really looks like what you asked for, you know, or getting a sample that comes on time, or getting it at the right price, or even not even having to pay. You know, and that's what I was able to do from the get go. Is that I wasn't paying for samples because I was so whenever they tried to charge me, I was like. Why are you going to do that when in a year's time I'm going to have ten thousand orders coming through, and, and they they were bought into it. So I would love to learn more about. So once you've had these, uh, you know, two years of iterations and going through samples, and finally you're ready to place that first production run. Do you remember how expensive that was? It would been less than ten thousand pounds. And you said you already had a, like Instagram or social media following at this at this time to to launch to the the the, the, the ten thousand you know pounds worth of uh, inventory too. Yeah, yeah, we had Instagram, but it, it didn't do anything, man. Like I, I remember, I remember when I was testing up Deems Boy, and I noticed that if, if the sale comes through, your mobile has a notification, you know, kaching. In the months leading up to launch, I had these grand visions of you know the moment that we launched at seven a.m. on Monday, we were going to um, you know, the, my phone was me pinging kaching, 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 and I launched, and it took about maybe an hour, maybe an hour of the first sales come through, and then even then it was from someone on commentary that I knew. So then I was even more disheartened because no one was really buying it. You know, it took, the reality is it took about, I don't know, maybe a year and a half for us to really start to get consistent sales. And, you know, it was at that point. So my, my best friend was my first employee, then my brother. Um, but they, they they were helping me before that, but they weren't able to come full time because Boxwell just wasn't making enough money. And, you know, Isaac, my brother, need, needed to um, carry on running the car sales business and feeding the money through into the business. So it was a long it was a long slug manner and there were definitely moments where I was doubting almost whether or not this was viable because, you know, part of the reason probably why a lot of my friends before were saying, you know, is anyone going to wear it is because, you know, the business, the car sales business was making a lot of money, right? And that it was a successful business. This was like a family business or, or what was it? No, no, no. It's, it's, some, it's something I started straight after uni. Oh, okay. My dad was a mechanic. Um, so I started working for him at the age of 12. And then, um, you know, every summer holiday, Christmas, every weekend, I was working for him. Um, and then while I was at uni, 
in my third year, um, there was one of the students, his car broke down and he couldn't afford the repairs. So I repaired it, I bought it off him, repaired it and sold it. And then I was like, okay, this is a niche here. So actually after university, I went back to college to do a MBQ, which is like a, which is a qualification basically in um, vehicle repair. So my car sales business was, the niche was buying cars that have been in accidents, repairing them and then selling them. Um, and by the second year, I actually grew it to, as a, as a one-man band, I hit $1.2 million in sales in, in the second year. So you can imagine from, you know, from the outside perspective, looking in, you know, friends thinking, okay, why is he going to, he's tried all these other businesses. Because if I told you every business I tried, you'd think law of averages, box will has to work now, right? Um, so from that perspective, they're like, Ben keeps trying all these different businesses, but it's like he's forgetting the fact that, this car sales business has got legs and is making you know some serious cash from yeah so how, how do you reconcile that i think it's like a i think it's a it's a situation that a lot of people are in right where they maybe not they don't have like you know a million dollar business that they're diverting their focus from but maybe they have a good paying job and but they have a passion like you do uh, with boxing and box raw that maybe even has a higher ceiling higher uh, you know bigger opportunities ahead of it but just not not realized yet how did you and that sounds like a very difficult situation it's almost like you got two great things that could that you could choose from um but how did you make the decision i think it was just recognizing that there was a ceiling on the car sales business right um that that was one of the easy ones. I think, you know, the, the, probably the easiest thing was just, I just didn't enjoy it. Right. I, I was very good at it. Um, I was very good at understanding what the market was looking for in terms of cars, um, you know, buying them at a low price, getting them repaired for a low price and then selling them. Um, but it also just, it turned me into someone that I, I, I didn't like, right. It got to the point where I became that good at sales that, you know, a customer would come in, you know, to buy a people carrier, you know, like a big SUV that they can fit the whole family in and they'd leave purchasing a hatchback from me, you know, and, and deep down I knew that this was the wrong car for them, but, you know, I became that good at sales that I was able to convince them that this would actually work. It gets to a point where you, you really want to be a salesman your whole life and having to sort of part of this front of someone coming in to buy something and then doing your best efforts to try and sell it. And it annoys me now when, you know, now being in box and I get these people that send me these cold call emails and phone calls. I'm like, I can see right through it, you know, and it's, that, that wasn't who I wanted to be. Right. I think there's a good point about how you said that you, you were good at it, but you didn't enjoy it. And I feel like this is a lesson that it's, I, I think it's hard to understand until you experience it yourself. Right. When people hear someone say something like this, you're, you're good at it. Um, it was making a lot of money, but you didn't enjoy it. They might be like, oh, just suck it up and, you know, just keep on doing it. Right. I think that's going to immediate reaction, but you've, you've, you've gone through that. You've experienced the, I guess the almost what they call like these golden handcuffs where things are working well for you you're making money but you just didn't enjoy it was turning into a person you didn't didn't like was when you went through that did it what did it was it was the decision easy like how can you explain to someone that might be thinking like oh that's a great opportunity why do you turn down that great opportunity yeah i think i mean the, just in terms of the actual story of it right so, so the car sales business was doing well then the car sales business was always running from the age of 21 up until when i was you know two years into box truck i can't think how old i would have been what 27 maybe um so that was what was running in the background, right? And then I tried, I tried my hand at different businesses. I mean, it, it was the actual mobile phone app that really got me thinking bigger and sort of thinking about, you know, mass market scale brands, you know, and th- that notion of being able to impact the world versus just being able to impact, you know, a country by selling some cars. Um, and I think it just came back, you know, what, what do I want my legacy to be? Do I want to be selling cars for the rest of my life or do I want to be, you know, really trying to change the world and trying to make an impact, you know, you know, as cliche as that sounds, that's what it was, you know, I wasn't looking at the cash and I know that's 
easier said than done. You know, if, if you're not in a position where you've got a business that's making money, you know, and you're working a, you know, perhaps a nine to five, which isn't paying you that well. But for me, it just came down to me wanting to make a difference, having that trust and belief in myself that I can make this work. Mm, makes sense. Okay, so I want to talk more about how you're able to finally kind of get things rolling. You mentioned about a year and a half before the sales were consistent. What were you doing that time that that didn't work that you would have wished you didn't spend time on? And then what what are some things that did help you start getting those consistent sales? Hmm. The things that did work, you know, I think we did a lot of seeding in the early days. Um, So we would would simply just send packages out to boxing gyms, to boxers, coaches, um, so, and then it's still to this day, we, we actually don't pay a penny to any influencer, you know, any boxer, any celebrity, you know, and we've got some of the biggest athletes, boxers, rappers, actors, you know, wearing the brand in the world, you know, and it's just because of authentic either seeding or because they're customers of the brand. Um, you know, I, I never wanted it to be a brand that, you know, is all about influence and, you know, hype and so on. Um, so for me in the early days, it was about staying, staying true to our core, but I think, Furthermore to that, it was about we had quality products, you know, still to this day, we get people that say, you know, your product is the best out there. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm not just saying that if anyone's listening in their own box, right, I hope they can, they can agree that we put a lot of time and energy into what we create. Um, you know, every fabric is custom developed, you know, every product has a story. Yeah, I think that they're just built for purpose. So I think I probably said that I read off a Shopify blog, you know, and that your customer is your best marketing tool. And that just really stuck with me. It's like, okay, if my customer is the best marketing tool, how do I provide the best experience for them? You know, so in the early days, we used to have these thank you cards and used to handwrite the customer's name on them on each card. And it was that sort of personal touch that customers were like, oh, wow, they really care. You know, the customer service, you know, and we still to this day probably over-invest in our customer service team. Um, because we just want to create the best possible experience. And that's always just sort of stuck with me that our customer is our best marketing tool. So how do we provide the best experience for them? Mm. So it sounded like there are a couple of things on the way. So the, the seating, which I, I'm assuming you, you're like sending uh, clothing, like packages to, to gyms to, to get people to to give it a shot. And if the product is great, they might, you know, come to your website and buy something else on their own. And if they like it, they might buy some more and more and spread it through word of mouth because the product is is, is so great. So I, I can imagine that in the beginning of doing all of this, it, it probably took a while for that to to start like turning into a flywheel where it's actually working did it feel like oh man we're spending a lot of money on inventory that we're sending out and nothing's happening yet was it like that or did you see immediate uh impact from doing it no it, it, it took a long time but i think you know from my perspective it's probably just because i was so tight you know with different businesses i had previously i just i would much prefer to have the money invested in products and then gifted somebody who's going to be hopefully be seen wearing it knowing that they're enjoying it. And, you know, the logic was that it would create this network effect, albeit, albeit it took a lot longer to create that network effect and really start to sort of catch on. But yeah, uh, again, I, I just have strong belief in the, in the products. And I, I, didn't want, I didn't want to have to pay someone to do a, a photo shoot or, you know, to post on it on Instagram. I prefer for it to be organic from the get-go. Um, and, I, you know, I, I predicted the, what would happen, you know, in the early days, you know, when I saw a lot of these brands jumping on this influencer wagon. Um, and I just, I, I could see these influencers then jumping to the next brand. Um, and my logic was always that, you know, if, if that influence then goes to the next brand and the, cust- the customer hasn't built up a loyalty or affinity toward the brand, what's happened is the customer's just got an affinity towards the influencer who's then going to the next brand. They're going to take that customer with them, you know? So for me, it was just all about building organic fans of the brand. 
Mm, that makes sense. And speaking of of influencers, you you told a story about a potential or, or a setback slash potential setback with a collaboration with a, a big influencer, which I'm sure you won't share their name. But tell us more about what what went wrong. Yeah, so it, it, this was a very famous boxer. He was a world champion. Um, if you do enough digging, you'll probably figure out who it was. And a really good relationship with him actually. You know, I was his commercial director. So I went all around the world with him to try and sort out sponsorship deals and so on. And we also had a collaboration with him on a 50-50 profit slip. You know, so we've always been very firm that we don't pay for your influence. But if we have a collaboration with you, we will split the money down the middle. So we had that going on and the contract was was coming to an end. And we started to talk about the next year's collaboration, how it would look. So, you know, I I bought around $1.2 million dollars cost price worth of gear you know to land in the warehouse in january in january came and what happened is that the manager then came to me and said look you know the contract's run out and if, if you don't if you don't give us 50 percent of the company then we're not going to resign the contracts and you're going to be stuck with the gear you know so it, it was an interesting dilemma because you know I, I knew that that was a lot of money to us at that time you know with him not promoting it how the hell were we going to be able to sell the gear um but actually what it taught us well first of all you know I, I obviously didn't do the deal i told them to go screw themselves and um you know i went on my way but you know fortunately one of my best friends from uni you know, he's a lawyer he wrote the contracts and we had this one year sell-off period which allowed us to still sell the gear you know in the event we were left with any gear um so that covered us and essentially what we had to do and this is where team really sort of stepped up we just had to become very resourceful with what we had so it got to the point whereby we had all these photos of of the said you know boxer in the gear and we'd basically be photoshopping him in different places so we'd have, we'd have him in the outfit you know and we change the colors of them because the new colors are dropped or we change the background of the environment he was in and we basically used that for a year to you know try and get rid of the products and you know, thank God by the end of the year, we actually shipped all the products, albeit some of that, some discounts, but we were able to get rid of it. But it broke my heart, you know, because I, I really consider this guy my friend and almost like family. You know, I've been around his house, I've spent time with his family, and it was really a tough pill to swallow. But, you know, I think it toughened me up a hell of a lot, first of all, understanding that, you know, business is business and not just take things personally and, you know, how to deal with crisis. Because for probably two years before that, I'd really been promoting him a lot, for, you know, for our page. And, you know, I've seen with him a lot. I'd be going to boxing events and I was known as this boxer's guy right but yeah it, it was the best thing to ever happen to us because off the back of that we then got another collaboration with someone who was his rival it all works out yeah that, that, that's um, a great story of how, how you're able to to kind of turn around and and take a, a really big lesson out of it and some 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 other thing you mentioned to us about lessons you've learned too is around uh leadership and how you had a different kind of mindset or mentality around it to to start but i've changed since then tell us more about your your kind of transformation when it came to the that came to that uh, concept or idea of leadership? Yes, I think in, in the early days, the big distinction between a startup and sort of a scale-up is that, you know, in a startup, you don't need someone who's got loads of experience, right? What you need is hustlers. And that's exactly what I hired, right? One of my best friends are hustler, my brother's a hustler. Um, the university students we hired on internships were hustlers, you know, all still here to this day. But that works in the early days, right? Because you just need people that can wear many hats across different departments and are prepared to get their hands dirty. Um, but later on, you know, and this is something that I really learned last year and that I was trying to keep the mentality of thinking that anyone can learn a job. And it was almost like me projecting how I am onto other people and that, right, okay, you haven't got the experience, but right, take this project and remember that, you know, and but the reality is now, you know, the size the company's at, we can't afford for people to just be learning on the job and don't be wrong, people are always learning on the job, but we actually need specialists. So that was a big shift that had to change, you know, towards 
towards the sort of mid, mid, mid last year, I started bringing people in bachelor experience versus people that just wanted to, you know, hustle and grind their way to the top. In terms of, um, you know, what I learned from leadership is that, you know, in the early days, those people were great. You know, where we're at right now, right now we're at the point where we need specialists now, you know, versus people that are just jack of all trades, you know, but master of, master of none. Is that easy to, to pick up on during the kind of interviewing, the hiring process to, to now ma- make this shift from uh, looking for hustlers, people that are just ready and willing to learn and be kind of a generalist uh, versus like um, the expertise, the specialization that you need today? No, it's very hard. And in fact, no, I made everyone mistake last year in terms of hiring. Um, you know, th- there's a rule of, you know, in the saying of hire slow, fire fast and um I, I did the exact opposite you know i was very quick to hire because i looked at a fancy cv without checking references not taking into account you know why they worked in these big brands but only worked there for you know six six to twelve months you know i've been hopping around um i wasn't looking for any of these red flags you know i was just excited at the idea that these guys are you know much older or they've been working at big companies and you know i just brought them all on and you know i actually ended up probably firing about a third of the people i hired last year um you know, towards the back end of the year and I really had to do like a real cleanse, you know, both in terms of skill sets, you know, ability, but also culture. Um, that's another thing, you know, as the company scales, the, the culture can change unless you really try and keep the top of it. Um, and it was almost like I had people that were doing roles very well, but I knew they weren't the right cultural fit, but I just needed them so much to be able to do the role because I was scared about what would happen if they, you know, if they then left and then, you know, I learned the hard way by the wrong culture permeating the team. You know, there was, you know, a few people last year that let go because they were just too negative, you know, every job was such a big job for them. And, you know, that permeated with the rest of the team. And I noticed other people then doing it and, you know, it got to the point, again, it took way too long to act on this, but it got to the point where I had to just pull the plug and say, look, you know, you are out now and this is not the culture I'm trying to build. And I essentially started fresh, you know, not, not completely fresh. Just, we still got probably about 30 people here that have been here for a few years now. Um, but yeah, there was a, there was a lot that I had to get rid of, you know, to try and keep that and maintain that culture. Yeah, it makes, makes sense. So boxraw.com, B-O-X-R-A-W.com is the website. And I'll, I'll leave you this last question. What do you think is the most important thing, activity, project for you personally to focus on to keep that company moving to that next milestone in, in your grand vision? Hmm. Right now, it's, it's, it's quite boring. I mean, we've got loads of big projects I'm working on. Um, but that's a, a big foundational thing I'm working on this year. Um, are brand guidelines. Um, because I think because the, you know, if anyone goes on the website or the Instagram, they'll see how true it is to the sport of boxing. And I took that for granted in the early days because I was involved in every single department. But what happened last year is I started to bring on people who are great operationally in certain departments. They weren't able to, you know, understand the brand, you know, thoroughly. So what I'm working at the moment is just guideline documents that can really help sort of inform people about how they need to operate in their department while staying true to the brand. Because that's another thing, right? Brands start off with this great niche and they're really cool and quirky. And as they get bigger, they just become, or they try and become something for everybody. And, you know, I'm, I'm acutely aware that that's a big reason why many brands fail, you know, after that five-year point. So um, it's a lot of foundational stuff at the moment just to allow us to get to that next stage. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Ben Amana, the founder of BoxRow. Ben, thank you so much. No, thank you for having me on, man. And that's all the time we have this week. Come hang out with us next time on Shopify Masters. Again, I'm Felix Tia. Take care.